From the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, this is the Tech Policy Grind podcast. Every two weeks, we'll discuss recent developments and exciting topics in the technology and internet law and policy space. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a member of the fourth cohort of Foundry Fellows. The Foundry is a collaborative organization for internet law and policy professionals who are passionate about disruptive innovation. In this episode, ILP Foundry Fellow Mary Bogdasarian sat down with Konstantinos Komaitis, a veteran of developing and analyzing internet policy to ensure an open and global internet. They discussed the recent developments around internet infrastructure and online content in the context of the war in Ukraine and their impact on the future of the open internet. Hi, Konstantinos. Thank you so much for joining our podcast. How are you today? Hi, Mary. Thank you so much for having me. I am uh, good. How are you guys? Very excited to have this chat with you. Um, so let's just dive right into the topic of today's podcast. Um, so you dedicated almost your whole career um, for, to advocating for a free and open internet. And while unfortunately we have witnessed a gradual decline in internet freedom around the world in the last decade, uh, the events um, Uh, of recent weeks uh, elevated the fight for open net to a new level, I would say. And uh, even though this is not the first time that we see government pressure, um, for instance, online platforms to take down content. However, what we witnessed in the last couple of weeks uh, was more interesting, but also quite worrisome. So to start us off, uh, can you provide our audience with a brief overview of the recent developments uh, since the horrifying event started unfolding in Ukraine? Um, sh- sure. I would like to first start perhaps by trying to detach a little bit the fight for an open internet with what's happening in Ukraine. I don't think that it does any justice to the to the war. It doesn't do uh, justice to what Ukrainian people are going through. Uh, and it also doesn't do justice to the internet, right? The, the, the war has nothing to do with the internet. Having said that, of course, we are seeing that the internet is part of the war narrative because it is so ingrained in, in everything that we're doing. Um, and it, it has been, even though this is not the first war that we are experiencing, you know, during the internet explosion, I really would, would like us to put things into perspective and always remember and recall that before um, uh, this war in Ukraine, there was a there was a, a war in Syria, and you know there were a lot of things that were happening there, and the internet was also part of those things. But as you've mentioned, we've seen quite some interesting um, reactions and narratives from both sides of the aisle, uh, and what I mean uh, by that is that we have seen um, on the on the one hand. Um, companies uh, proactively or through requests uh, by you know by uh, through requests by governments uh, to remove themselves and cut ties um, with Russia. And on the other hand, we have also seen Ukraine as a state actor uh, trying to do two things: a use the internet in a way that is actually very very impressive. Uh, and I think that as soon as this is over and we need to have a conversation as to why 
this time around misinformation failed so dramatically from the Russian uh, side. Uh, but on the other hand, they were also trying to, as part of seeking for support, right, they were trying to change a little bit the roles and responsibilities of some of the actors. Mm-hmm. And I'm referring mainly to those ones at the infrastructure. And I think that, you know, what Ukraine did is pretty understandable. You know, they're in the middle of of something that hopefully none of us will ever experience and it's unthinkable. So it's pretty understandable that they're, you know, they're asking for help and they, they, they will get the help wherever they can. But it is very important for those engaging in those requests and all of us that are participating in these conversations to try to keep um, a straight head and try to put the facts out there in ways that de-sensationalize uh, as much as it is possible uh, such a horrific um, uh, thing like a war. Yes, uh, I actually love the fact that you decided to start a discussion with putting everything in perspective, because sometimes it seems like this is the first war that happened in the internet era and everything is unprecedented uh, on another level. Um, But unfortunately, uh, we have witnessed many more conflicts uh, that we're not so fortunate with having such quick reactions around the events unfolding in these countries. Uh, But you also mentioned um, one of the things that was, I think, interesting in this context, uh, which is the development on the infrastructure level, particularly the responses from ICANN and RIPE. Um, So what what are your reactions to this development? Right. Uh, In a nutshell, I think that they did the right thing. Uh, I was very happy that they did the right thing. Um, I, I, I thought that it would set a very, very dangerous precedent if they had uh, complied with the request from Ukraine uh, because these um, um, entities need to be neutral, right? And I have been, um, you know, we seem to be going through an environment where even using the word neutrality now is becoming a little bit dangerous or a little bit treacherous. And I understand those, those critics um, of the term because we have seen how big tech has also taken the term neutrality and has twisted it to its own uh, convenience. But in terms of infrastructure, we mean that uh, these entities are there to ensure a very, speci- very specific tasks that are apolitical in nature, right? Um, better yet, no, apolitical is not the, the right word because they make political decisions. They are not politicized, however, and that is the difference. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I think the way ICANN and RIPE responded was the best way to respond in such um, a request, and uh, both for Ukraine in the long run, but also for um, the Internet itself. Yes, indeed. Um, it seemed that everybody was um, in this on this wave of uh, supporting Ukraine 100%, which I think is still the way to go. But also keeping everything in perspective is important even during wartime. Um, so it was really interesting to see how nuanced um, ICANN and RIPE um, thought about yeah, because, this. 
Mary, the thing that we have to understand is that no one handed these organizations the, the internet keys and said, okay, you are responsible now for, you know, to, to make decisions of who is, you know, of how infrastructure is going to be uh, governed. No one did that. The intention was that we created those entities in order to be able and provide management through a much more inclusive process. So you cannot really bypass that process, even though you can, you will be tempted, and even though there might be uh, circumstances that, at their face, they might appear, um, you know, it might appear legitimate to do so. I think that we need to be more careful because we are sending signals. And so, if I can were to take, uh, you know, to submit to the request or if right. Essentially, we will be sending a signal that as long as you are, you know, um, um, friendly, leaning to what Ukraine is going through, you are part of the club. If for any reason you want to, to maintain some neutrality or be negative for whatever reason, right, you are not part of the internet. Mm -hmm. And that is not how the internet is supposed to run. Everyone is part of the internet. Whether we like the people that they're part of the internet or they, we don't, this is not an exclusive club of Western countries or an exclusive club of NATO countries or an exclusive uh, club of people that want to form alliances, even those, even if those alliances are Western or even those alliances are, you know, China and Russia, for instance. No one should be able to pull strings on how things should be happening in the internet, at least at the infrastructure level. Yes, internet for everyone. Um, but... Um... A related question is actually Russia's reaction after um, we heard from ICANN and RIPE, and this comes in, um, in the context of them, you know, running tests back in 2019 uh, to detach from internet and having their own internet law. And I'm curious about your thoughts around this, whether this is actually a chance for Russia to finally go through with this, or um, what do you think about this? Well, I think the you know this war pretty much called their bluff. Unfortunately, it took a, a war, meaning that since 2019, and we've mentioned it, you know, we've been hearing for a long, uh, for many years that Russia would like ideally to disconnect itself from the global network, and mm -hmm. we have been hearing as well that there were efforts towards that goal. With, of course, the 2019. Um, uh, sovereignty law that sort of established the legal framework around how this were to happen. And also in 2019, when that law uh, emerged, uh, there was also some reporting that Russia tested successfully disconnection from the global internet. I remember a BBC article saying that, but they never provided more information. And a mm -hmm. bunch of us and some other people who are more technically acute and more intelligent than I am we're all, we were all discussing, okay, but where are the details? How did you actually manage to do this? So fast forward three years later, we are in 2022. Russia wants to and says that it will disconnect itself from the internet. At some point, even something that looks like an official document in Russian uh, pops up claiming that on the 14th of March, they would completely disconnect themselves from the internet. Well, here we are. It's the, it's the 31st of March. Uh, they haven't disconnected themselves. Um, the, the, you know, the internet is still alive and kicking. You know, mm -hmm. the idea of the internet, of course, there are things that are not working 
within Russia, but in terms of connectivity, the internet is still there. So from where I'm sitting, I think that, you know, one of the lessons so far from this war is that, uh, well, two things. A, being part of the global internet makes wars more difficult to be won because Mm -hmm. you cannot really, you know, you are part of the dependencies you have created are so great that you just cannot just switch off uh, anything. And that's why, Mm -hmm. you know, we're always going back to this idea of decentralization, not as a gospel, uh, but as the ability, you know, as the antithesis, better yes, of having a central switch that you can turn on and off. So that was the first thing. And the second thing is that, you know, it's easier said than done. Russia cannot disconnect itself from the global internet, even though they want it. And most probably so far, what they have been saying um, was an exaggeration, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that they exaggerated on the basis that we want at some point to have autonomy over this and we aspire to be China. But one of the things that, I have been saying ever since 2019 is that unlike China that started this isolation early on and created a whole strategy that included policy, infrastructure, and economy around this idea of great firewall, Russia only started recently to think about this. And up until that time, they were using the global network. They were part of the global network. They're using, which means that They were using foreign servers. A lot of content was hosted on foreign servers. So suddenly saying, I am out, is not as simple as that. Uh, But it is very much in line with how autocrats operate, right? They want to demonstrate that they're actually Mm -hmm. doing something that nobody believes they can do because they need to demonstrate their superiority in terms to, you know, to see who's going to follow them blindly or who's going to be questioning them. Yes, indeed, it's interesting how much they can um, actually, you know, fulfill their words with action. And here's a fun fact. Apparently, you know, King, uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea has told his, you know, the North Korean citizens that he has created and invented the hamburger. <laughs> and they believe him. But that's how you test it, right? That's how you test the loyalty of your people. When you sell those crazy or impossible stories, and if they believe them, you know that you still have a hand on power. And I think that part of of I am disconnecting myself from the internet or Russia from the internet is part of that ideology behind autocrats. Putin wanted to demonstrate to the world, but more importantly to his own people, that Russia has the capacity to detach itself from something that he always considered to be, or he was always referring to, better yet, uh, to be a CIA experiment. Well, exactly. Capacity is the keyword here. Uh, it, I think it's easier to convince people that uh, your leader um, invented hamburger when you have, you know, state-regulated media, um, you know, your whole life, and the, right. the whole information infrastructure is being monitored while, um, you know, really detaching yourself from the global net doesn't really work like like that. So it's it's um different challenge i think um to do that um but going back to the reactions uh, from uh ripe and uh, i can uh let's assume that they actually went with ukraine's um request what issues do you think would have um 
come up after they uh, supported the request. So we are currently, I'm trying to think whether we are entering it or we have already entered it. I think we have already entered a new paradigm um, of internet mm -hmm. governance. Uh, and that is greater state actor involvement, right? We know that countries are interested and we see that countries are interested because they're regulating it mm -hmm. left, right, and center. It doesn't really matter which, which, where in the map you look at. Most probably there will be some sort of emerging um, regulation. Uh, but in the past three years in particular, we have also seen the multilateral system seeking to become more involved as it also tries to figure out its own governance structures, moving from um, uh, moving towards mm -hmm. a multipolar system, right, where you have many poles of power instead of the unilateral system that existed for quite some time. So within the UN, there are plenty of processes, and there are a lot of quite a few significant future events that are shaping slowly the way states are thinking and they want to govern the internet. So if I can write where to grant, all in all to say that if I can write where to grant the request uh, from uh, Ukraine, the only real thing that you would do in the long run would be to provide the ammunition to Russia and China and many other countries that are questioning and they're putting huge pressure on this multi-stakeholder um, model uh, to actually say, this is exactly why we believe we need to take charge because here you have, you know, an American and a European, well, mm -hmm. an American base and a European-based entity essentially pulling the strings um, according to NATO's and, and the West's request. Mm -hmm. So the internet is actually not inclusive. The internet, and that is the fear that a lot of these countries feel, right? Mm -hmm. That the internet is hugely Western, right? And what the only thing that, we, that it is doing for them is in a, in a very top-down manner, telling them how infrastructure should be built, telling them which services they should use, telling them which engineers they need, to follow, telling them when and where they can participate. So you would only exacerbate that feeling that really exists in the global south and in particular Africa. Mm -hmm. So this whole idea of digital colonialism that we we also heard, I think, you know, would only exacerbate things, you know, terms like that, like that one and make the case for... UN's involvement in, uh, in internet governance pretty much a de facto thing. Yes, I actually, um, I feel like this development happened at maybe, you know, this was uh, a big test to this multi-stakeholder governance, but also um, they happened at the wrong time because of all the changes in, for instance, internet governance ecosystem and uh, the feelings around uh, what is internet and what is right and what is wrong moving forward. So it was really interesting to see the nuanced approach from these entities. Um, but also just, uh, I think our audience may be interested to understand how actually if they were to go through with the request, how would this have worked on a more technical level? Is it really that ICANN has a switch 
uh, to just, you know, um, take Russia off the internet or how does it work? No, ICANN does not have a switch. It would just stop, um, you know, domain names ending in .ru would stop resolving essentially in, in, uh, in Russia and then uh, RIDE would not allocate and they would retract all IP addresses that were allocated, essentially making communication, you know, out, making communicate, well, making um, uh, more difficult for users outside of Russia to access things inside mm-hmm. Russia, which again, defeated the whole purpose, right? It would be more of a, you know, the question that I asked automatically when I saw that request and some people even suggesting that, you know, th- these entities should go with it was, will it actually stop the war? Mm-hmm. If we do this, will it actually stop the war? And the answer, of course, is no, right? It wouldn't really stop the war. It really wouldn't do anything to the war. It might cause a little bit of a disruption, which would be very easily circumvented because the war is not mm-hmm. based on the DNS or the allocation of IP addresses, we would be, you know, sort of pointing the finger, we would be focusing on something that we shouldn't be focusing, whereas, you know, the the real thing was happening and is is still happening right before our eyes. Yes, that's a very interesting question. And uh, I think it is important to ask that every time, um, you know, you get a request like that and any other requests. And I was actually thinking the same when I read um, the reactions around uh, two Russian uh, media outlets that um, essentially got banned almost everywhere. Um, And I, as someone who works on global free expression, I was curious about the effects of this moving forward. Um, So what what do you think about this? I think that it was one of those moments that we haven't fully realized and in, uh, at some point history will we'll point them out, one of the biggest miscarriages of democracy. Um, the, I, I am a huge fan of proportionality. I believe in proportionality and, and this is a principle that Europe also mm-hmm. is very much keen and inspiring to. Uh, I think it was disproportionate. Uh, Of course, it won't stop the war. I think that it was also a little bit misguided because there was, you know, effectively the Europeans knew that there would be, must have known better, yes, that there would be a response and banning European channels or foreign channels from Russia is actually far worse because then you don't have, Russian people will not get reliable information. They will only be exposed to propaganda. Um, but also the fact that I, I, you know, before going into the nuclear option, I believe that there were other things that Europe could have tried. You know, you can put a, boot, a big banner underneath saying mm-hmm. this is, most probably, this is a propaganda channel, right? And let people decide. I, I never, th- I never believed that pushing people underground is ever a good solution because essentially what you're doing is that you're inspiring them to actually even come more together and fight. And you want the conversations that are very uncomfortable 
to be in the open because then you know that these are happening and you can be more prepared. Uh, so, yeah, I think that Europe was a little bit quick on that one. Um, and it, without realizing it, it has sort of opened um, a Pandora's box that I can see uh, I can see Europe tapping into every time there is an extraordinary um, circumstance. And if you know your listeners could see us right now, they would see that under extraordinary. I you know I just put air quotes. Um, so yeah. Yes, uh, exactly. I mean, there is no debate that these are extraordinary circumstances. But what do we generally mean Absolutely. by extraordinary circumstances? Um, that is a big question mark. And um, looking ahead, it feels like this that may be not the best precedent uh, for other situations and um, that, you know, may allow for interpretations and potentially chilling effect on free expression. I personally was quite surprised uh, by Europe's uh, quick reaction. So I've been thinking a little bit about this and I was like, you're right. I mean, it was a very quick reaction. Part of me feels that actually they needed in the early days of the war and as they were trying to get, you know, um, to get together and get an agreement about the sanctions that followed, those tiny steps seemed to be the easy ones that showed that, you know, the West was reacting uh, in small and incremental steps going, of course, to the point of the economic sanctions. So there is a part of me that believes that, you know, this was also some sort of a showing, right, that we are here, we are very much collective, um, there is a collective thinking and, and we can get around this pretty quickly. And sure, you know, these are, look at us, we are taking some steps, but bear with us because, you know, there will be greater coming. Uh, but unfortunately, even if that's the case, it's not a very good excuse of undermining democracy. At the time, I was speaking to a friend and, you know, we were discussing this and we were debating this from both sides. And at some point, I, I, I just reached to a point that I said, for whatever reason, I don't think that the answer lies uh, in, in the, you know, that the answer of fighting dictatorships or authoritarianism lies in, the, in undermining democracies. I don't think that this can work. It's not, you know, this is not a case of I need to get down on your level for you to understand what is going on. I think that this is a case of sticking to the principles and demonstrating why sticking to those very principles can actually make a difference and why, you know, people need to fight for all those things. Because by chipping away those democratic things slowly, the only thing you're doing is diluting your own democracy and you're making a weaker case for why you're asking your citizens to support you. And as we mentioned, uh, we uh, witnessed quite quick response uh, from uh, the tech uh, companies as well. And partly maybe that was because of the political uh, reactions. Um, so I'm curious what you think, Absolutely. whether this will um, you know, help them rethink their responses to other um, armed conflicts and crises happening in other parts of the world moving forward. I will be a little bit controversial here, and this is a thought that I have been having for quite some time, and it's still not fully developed, but I am getting pretty convinced that 
big technology companies and other big companies, um, but 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 especially big technology companies, they're part of foreign affairs and they're exercising foreign affairs whether they like it or not, right? When when Google or Facebook decide to go to X country that is not very democratic, they make a very conscious decision that sure is a business decision, but being an American company. At the same time, they're making a decision that goes against their own ideals, right? How many times have we heard Google and Facebook talking about an open internet and, a, mm-hmm. you know, an interoperable internet? But then again, we see them craving for the business of Russia or of China or of, you name, any other um, authoritarian country. So, unfortunately, it took a war for, for them to... to act like that. I don't think that they will change, but I think that because we are at a, you know, at a turning point and we have been at a turning point for quite some time, for those of us who have been paying attention, I think we have seen the tides changing slowly and steadily since 2016 in particular, but even before that, right, when Snowden came out in 2013, with the surveillance uh, revelations, we just realized that, oh my God, this, this internet thing is a weapon, can be used as a weapon better yet. So by the time we realized that, we also knew that if, you know, state actors are using it as a weapon, we are seeing right now a, a, a democracy mm-hmm. in our case. So if a democracy can do that, imagine what um, a more authoritarian regime can actually achieve because we are at this tipping point, we need to, uh, not we need, I think that big technology companies need to bear some responsibility as to how they advocate and how much they walk the walk in terms of being able to support um, an open, free and interoperable internet. Yes, indeed, it seems like this situation um, was a, quite a test for every stakeholder involved in this ecosystem. So I'm curious to see what lessons we'll learn uh, from the responses um, moving forward. So um, looking ahead, um, I would love to ask you about uh, your thoughts on decentralization. So in your uh, TED talk, you um, outlined some principles for decentralized internet things like, um, you know, um, general purpose or accessibility or no permanent favorites. Um, So what do you think? um, Are we moving too far from having this type of internet? Or what should we do to keep it decentralized and open? Between the TED Talk and now, um, I'm I'm still a big fan of decentralization, but I am more... um, What's the word that I'm looking for? I guess I am much more practicable when it comes to decentralization. Decentralization is not a dogma, and it's currently being used as a dogma in the context of Web3. You know, decentralization and everything will be solved magically. Economies will be solved. uh, Privacy issues will be solved. Security will be solved. um, The global economic, sorry, the global climate crisis can be solved. Everything will be solved. And I don't believe that this is the case. I have yet to see a paradigm um, in the context of Web3 that sort of allows 
decentralization to fully show its promise. But, you know, we need to bear in mind that also decentralization creates structures of consolidation. It allows those structures of consolidation to exist because it operates highly on network effects and economies of scale. So by the time you put those two together, you inevitably do not have, you know, you cannot say I've created a decentralized architecture and I'm done. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Now you're all safe. Um, I think that what we missed to do around, you know, the, the internet was to create next to the decentralized architecture of the internet to create decentralized institutions. Uh, and by decentralized institutions, I don't mean all multi-stakeholder governance and you go and have fun with it and good luck, but I mean institutions that where the public and private are able to sort of come together and create, um, create no, and, and support the eco- ecosystems that are decentralized, right? Support them in a way that allows, for instance, innovation to happen through open software and, you know, things like, um, um, sorry, the open software movement, uh, where you also have policies that take off of that and then they support innovation rather than prohibit it, right? And we don't really, we haven't seen that. And unless we change a little bit the way we think about decentralization in this context of Web3, and unless we start being a little bit more creative, because literally currently the business models and the paradigms, they lift the narrative of Web2 and they just stick it into Web3 and then they add a couple of words called decentralization next to it. Uh, I don't think things will change. Um, yes, very interesting. And decentralization definitely is the buzzword uh, these days. Um, so we talked a lot about uh, good and bad responses um, in this uh, context of the war in Ukraine. Uh, but um, my question to you is, so what is the thing that gives you most hope and the thing that bothers you most uh, looking um, at the future of the Internet? I can tell you, let, let me start with what keeps me up at night. Um, misinformed and misjudged regulation. So my journey in, in, the, in regulation of the internet has literally gone, you know, it, it has been a long one. I started and I was part of this um, ideology that regulation was not necessary and that the technology itself, uh, along with the market, would provide solutions. Uh, of course, I was wrong and I was mistaken. Uh, this didn't happen. And right now, you know, we had 2016. We have right now the big tech and the monopoly and the abuse of that monopoly that they're exercising. But, but so regulation is necessary. I am, you know, I am, it's not that I am converted, but I am convinced that right now there is no way that, you know, the market can do anything. And FYI, because I keep on, you know, parentheses, a little bit of parentheses, I keep on hearing, you know, big tech is the biggest threat to democracy. And I see it also written next to Putin in China. I think that big tech is not the biggest tech to, to, tech to democracy in terms of shaking the foundations of democracy. But I believe it is a threat to democracy because it sort of demonstrated the gaps of democracy to be able to tame it, right? It is not that it 
it is I don't believe that Facebook um, um, is actively working to undermine democracy. I believe that the whole setup of Facebook, and we all knew how this was being set up, which was based on data, 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 feed me data, inevitably would could be gained by a fraction of the population that believes A or B, whatever it is. Um, so regulation is necessary, but regulation that doesn't really understand the way the internet works and understand what are the nuances for me is ugh, makes me cringe and makes me uncomfortable and it, it makes me concerned you know online safety bill in the united kingdom and what it does to encryption the same for the dma you know there are security now experts are coming out claiming that interoperability cannot guarantee encryption and thus security of communications. And it's not, you know, if that's the case, have the conversation, identify mechanism, and it goes back to decentralization. If we already had those institutions, we would be avoiding this tension, right? But because we have a very loose and abstract uh, understanding of multi-stakeholderism, which essentially means nothing as far as I'm concerned right now, we are not capable of being at a place where we can regulate and avoid those big mistakes. Of course, there will be gaps and mistakes will be happening and, you know, they will be fixed. But it's a big one when everybody's telling you in the context of the online safety bill if you're going to kill encryption, this is what is going to happen. And you see lawmakers insisting that their way is better. So that, to me, is, is, is really, really concerning. Where I'm hopeful, um, I am hopeful in the people that are coming and they're seeing what they don't like and they're going to reject it and create something new. And I'm not talking about techno-absolutism or techno-solutionism. I am talking about, you know, I, I am hoping that at some point people will find again the inspiration that the early folks in the internet found and they will start creating things that, you know, take the lessons and try to turn them into something, um, uh, into a valuable you know, lesson, take the, the, you know, the experience and turn it into a valuable lesson. Great pointers uh, for all of our uh, listeners, I would say. Um, and um, this was a fascinating uh, discussion um, and I hope our audience uh, enjoyed it too. But to close us off, um, I have uh, one more ask. Um, so, you know, this is um, the podcast of the Internet Law uh, and Policy Foundry and it is a community of early career um, internet law and policy professionals. So what piece of advice would you offer to, um, you know, open internet advocates out there? Speak up. Don't be afraid to speak up. Um, there, is, there is a lot to be said about what a collection of voices can achieve and especially a collection of voices from people who are coming in and they were born in this environment. I was not born, you know, in the internet. 
I've, I've became an internet user late on in life, especially in comparison to right now, right? I remember the first time I touched the computer, I was 20. No, I actually sent an email and I had my account. I was 20 years old. Right now, you're born into this. So you know what is happening. You know the good and you know the bad. Uh, so my advice would be keep reminding people of the good and fight against the bad but never give up and always speak up. That's a wonderful piece of advice. Thank you so much, Konstantinos. I greatly enjoyed our chat. (laughs) Mary, thank you so very, very much for having me. And um, yeah, I am very much looking forward to seeing you all around. Yes, we would love to have you uh, again. And uh, please do join the Foundry. Um, And to all our listeners, thank you so much for... um, joining this episode and um, have a great day.